In the moment's hour when Nazism was emerging, Adolf Hitler spoke to a group of people in, in a Munich beer cellar. And his words were harsh, potent, inflamed with hate and cruelty, and were mirrored on the hardened faces of the evil group to which he spoke. It wasn't very long after that event that the charged words of this depraved tyrant engulfed the world in a devastating war of hatred and incomprehensible cruelty. Now an artist has portrayed that scene of that beer seller speech, putting to canvas the facial reactions of that gathering of intent listeners as they allowed themselves to become immersed in Hitler's inflammatory words. The title of that painting, In the Beginning Was the Word. The irony is not easily missed. The same declaration opens the timeless gospel of the Apostle John who declared that it was by the definitive word, the very being of God, Jesus Christ himself, that all of life, spiritual and physical, came into existence by his mere utterance of a word. What a contrast between that scene and the scene in John's gospel. The glory of life or the horror of death can be traced back to the concept of an uttered word. As the scriptures remind us, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The beginning of any horrendous and honorable event, either one of them, can usually be traced back to the utterance of words. Words are extremely powerful and they're undeniably revealing. There's no getting around the biblical fact that our words reveal our hearts. And we talked about that beginning last week. Last time we were together, I closed my talk by sharing with you the words of a historically renowned man of philosophical insight. Socrates once said to his young student, Speak, friend, that I may see thee. Remember that? The profundity of that statement is arresting. The old-time down-home preacher, Vance Havner, once quipped, the old country doctor of my boyhood days always began his examination by saying these words. Let me see your tongue. That's a good way to start the examination of anybody, isn't it? The truth rings clear. The quality of our words indicates the condition of our hearts. Bitter water comes only from a bitter fountain. Therefore, worthless conversation is a misrepresentation of true Christianity. Let me say that again. See if you buy it or not. Worthless conversation is a misrepresentation of true Christianity. James summed it up in no roundabout fashion. Like a piano dropped from a fourth-story window, James' words in chapter 1, verse 26, brings the truth down to earth with a ring that rattles our insides. Chapter 1, verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Worthless, James says, of no account, empty. In other words, an uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart, a heart that's not controlled by God. What's the cure? Surrender your heart, then watch your mouth. That's the cure. 
I left you last time with a prayer of practical and spiritual necessity that came from Psalm chapter 141, verses 3 and 4, which says this, and it's a good thing to write on a card somewhere and stick it on your dashboard, especially on your dashboard. Better to stick it right in here, in the forefront of your mind. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. It's a great prayer to start the day with. We need that prayer every single day. Why? Because without divine assistance, we cannot tame the tyrant from hell, our tongues. James chapter 3. Let's look at verse 3. And on down to verse 12. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been created in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Again, James is saying an uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart and therefore we must understand how to get control over it. James' whole point in this passage, even though he doesn't come right out and literally say it, is to drive home the importance of allowing the Holy Spirit to control our speech. And he hammers it home by approaching the topic from three very different but extraordinarily effective directions. First, he grabs our attention with the strikingly familiar. Verses 3 and 4 talks about bits in horses' mouths and ships with rudders. Using these two common illustrations, James makes no excuses as he expresses this tremendous power of little things. First, the horse and the bridle in verse 3. We put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us and we direct their entire body as well. Now elaborating on what he unveils in verse 2, he makes his point that if a man or a woman can effectively control his tongue, he or she, in essence, direct something larger in scope than that. Your entire body. And, and you prevent it from being exploited by sin. A tiny bit in the mouth of a horse, much greater in size, controls the entire horse. Any riders in here? 
You know that to be true, right? Pretty simple. The bridle doesn't just control the mouth or even the head of the horse, but as any rider knows, it will secure the obedience of the entire animal. The point is that control must be applied to the right place in order for it to be effective, right? It's not achieved by accident. It's intentional. Who would ever think that you could control the horse by putting a bridle under his tail? You think that would work? Not for very long. It wouldn't be effective in controlling anything except the guarantee of pitching yourself headlong into the ditch. Right? Friends, you and I go through all kinds of rituals and routines trying to control our lives, our spiritual lives. But one of the first and most effective places that we need to be harnessed is in our speech and what emanates from our hearts. If the tongue is under control, it means the heart is under control. Right? Get control over your tongue and you'll effectively be able to direct your body. The second image is even more picturesque that Paul, um, Paul James uses. The ship and the rudder, verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. This picture of a ship being driven by the incredible power of a stiff, strong wind, which no man can control, yet by the use of a very small rudder, a man can direct in any direction his inclinations take him. Anyone who has command of the rudder determines the course of the entire boat. Even our own familiar life experiences testify to our control over the enormous by the minute. If we do it with horses and ships, James says, of titanic proportions, shouldn't we be able to do it with our own lives? By the use of the familiar, James begins to unfold the reality of the foreign. Tongue control is absolutely foreign to the majority of us. Is that right? I mean, it is with me. I preached that sermon last week, and wouldn't you know it, Every time I preach a sermon, of course, God is going to test me in the very things I'm teaching. So last week, I was tested on two fronts. My teaching and my tongue. My presentation of the teaching. And I met with some people last week, and it was like somebody just ripped out my insides because the way that I presented my teaching was absolutely, just, it just didn't go well, let's put it that way. I didn't choose my words correctly and alienated some people. I was ready to resign. Not really, but <laughs> I really felt bad. And so I made it a point, I'm not going to preach on anything serious anymore. <laughs> Tongue control is absolutely foreign to the majority of us. When it comes to our words, we are out of control. And it's at this crucial point in life that we all trip. And we desperately need help with this. A bit in the mouth of a horse controls the whole horse, translates Eugene Peterson. A small rudder on a huge ship in the hands of a skilled captain sets a course in the face of the strongest winds. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, he writes, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. 
How often do you, and I know how this is with me, but how often do you actually pause before you speak and think about the impact that the words that are about to come from your mouth will make in the grand scheme of life? How often? Depends on the situation. Is there a situation in which we shouldn't pause? Do we even realize what James is saying here? Because you may think your speech doesn't really impact anything in the grand scheme of things. Trust me, it does. The tongue, small as it may be, has the power to direct the destinies of people's lives. believe that? It doesn't control the destiny of somebody's life, but it can direct them toward good or evil. Layman Strauss says that one word of spiritual counsel, compassion, or comfort can be used to guide a troubled soul to safe harbor. You find that to be true? Or as history indicates, it can be used to inflame an entire society toward hatred. Curtis Vaughn accurately and eloquently summarized it when he said, it can sway men to violence or it can move them to the noble actions. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, or soothe the dying. Or it can crush the human spirit. Destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and bring nations to the brink of war. All from the power of words. And so moving from the strikingly familiar, James next unloads on us the sizzling facts. Look at verse 5. So that also, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets fire the course of our entire life and is set on fire by hell. James isn't mincing any words here. I think he's choosing his words carefully. And here are the cold hard facts of the searing, sizzling truth about our tongues. Number one, it's conceited. It's conceited. Verse 5, the tongue boasts of great things. The tongue makes great claims for such a small member. Big talk. But the claims are real. The word James uses here does not indicate an empty boast, but of the prideful, conceited haughtiness of its own self-importance. He views the tongue here in this text as an organ of speech having its own personality and power. You ever feel like that? Like your tongue has its own personality and power? It's almost as if, as if it has a mind of its own. And an inflated mind of its own at that. It arrogantly declares its own great exploits, big talk from such a small member. Yet world-changing and life-altering events have always been the result of a tongue which was allowed to run amok. Listen to what James says in, in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the way that the message paraphrases it. 
I love the way that it puts it. Brings color to it. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. It's conceited, James says. Secondly, he says, it's contemptuous. It boasts of great things. Look at the damage, James says. One small spark can cause. One fiery, misdirected word can ignite a raging fire that can ravage and destroy. This is by far James's greatest word picture, and I believe the most graphic in verse 6. Uh, actually, the second part of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. What's more destructive than a fire? Right? In 1953, a pan of rice boiled over onto a charcoal stove in a small home in Korea. In less than 24 hours, almost 3,000 buildings were completely destroyed within an area covering one square mile. Look up and take notice, James says emphatically. The tongue is a small thing, but what an enormous damage it can cause. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. Now you and I know how true this, his words are, don't we? In our own lives even. In the heat of an argument, you know that you shouldn't say it, right? Right, husbands? Guys? Wives? Parents? Teenagers? You know you shouldn't say it, but you just can't stop yourself. You can't stop yourself from letting an angry, cutting word spew forth. And it hurts. It hurts the person for whom it's intended, doesn't it? Sometimes it cuts deeper than you could have ever imagined. And in the end, you wish you had never said it because you always pay the consequences, don't you? And sometimes the consequences last an entire lifetime. I've known fathers and daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and many others who have refused to speak to each other for five 10, 20 years or more. And the whole breakdown began with a word that sparked an entire lifetime of emotional bitterness and relational pain. This is what the Bible says. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up strife. The beginning of an argument or strife is like letting out of water, so abandon the argument before it breaks out, says Proverbs 17, 14. Those are two great words from the Proverbs that can direct our conversations, especially in the heat of an argument. Instead of letting words rip, we ought to learn to let others' comments roll, shouldn't we? Roll right off your back, because your tongue and my tongue is a destructive fire, and it's conceited, and it's contemptuous, and it says in verse 6 that it is consuming. It's consuming. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Those are strong words. 
Nothing stronger was ever said about the tongue, suggests one commentator. This is a devastating portrait. Every stroke of James's pen reveals a little more of this hideous picture. Fire is a more than adequate metaphor for the nature of our tongues. And when left uncontrolled, or they actually, when we try to control it without the help of the Spirit, it consumes everything combustible in its path. Because we can't control it without the help of the Spirit. The tongue is a fire. Proverbs 16.27 says, A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. Just as damaging as a madman shooting a lethal weapon, Proverbs 26 says, is someone who lies to a friend and then says, Oh, I was only joking. Fire goes out for lack of fuel. Proverbs 26, 18 to 21 says, and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. Look, Glenn was talking about this morning, right? Take away the fuel, douse the fire. Take the air away, douse the fire. Take the heat away, douse the fire. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire lights wood, says the word of God. I'm going to have some couple of guys pass out some things for you. Things that you can put in your Bible as a bookmark or you can put them in the car or you can take them with you. It's uh, what I call the verbal fire extinguisher. It's a tongue depressor. It comes with instructions, as you'll see. It says, in case of fire, insert into mouth and depress. Want to control your tongue? Here it is. Here's your rudder. Here's your bit and bridle. Here are the sizzling facts about your tongue and mine. It's conceited, it's contemptuous, and it's consuming. Number four, it's corrupt. Verse six. It sets on fire the course of our life. It, it, it defiles the entire body and is set on fire by hell. It's corrupt. The very world of iniquity, it says. One man put it bluntly when he said, there are few sins that people commit in which the tongue is not involved. True, isn't it? This is this microcosm of the world of evil. Think about it. It lies, it slanders, it kindles hatred, it incites lust, it causes division, discord, and it blasphemes. It is entirely inclined to evil short of the empowering grace of God, and it gives evidence of the corruptness of our depraved heart. What proceeds out of the man is what defiles him, Jesus said, because it comes from the heart which is already defiled. What's the answer? Cleanse your heart. Let Jesus cleanse your heart, because an uncontrolled tongue reveals an unrestrained heart, one that is unrestrained by the Spirit of God. Get the Spirit of God in your heart and you'll find that your tongue is a little easier to control. Fifthly, James says it's contaminating. It defiles the entire body. It morally defiles the entire body. The word here that James uses means to stain or to spot. Literally to soil and contaminate. 
The tongue blemishes a person's character and personality. James points out that the tongue occupies the distinct place among our physical makeup that can morally contaminate our entire being and expose our inner stain, sin-stained condition. It's like a moral leprosy, so to speak. It can influence every one of our other physical members and defile all of our actions. A loose tongue is usually followed by a loose life. A loose tongue is usually followed by a loose life. James goes on to say that it's comprehensive. It sets on fire the course of our entire life. Literally, the phrase translates as the wheel of birth in this text. It refers to the course of our entire existence throughout life. In other words, an uncontrolled tongue kindles the most malignant and destructive fires in life and reaps lifelong consequences. You think James is being a little dramatic here? He's really bringing it, isn't he? He's showing how serious the issue of our tongues and the power of our words really are, is. Not only is the tongue conceited, contemptuous, consuming, corrupt, and contaminating, and it's comprehensive in its reach, but ultimately it's combustible. It is set on fire by hell, James says. Now, if you're going to be harsh, if you're going to be serious, bring in the hell word, right? Here's the bottom line on where the sins of the tongue originate from, according to James. It is set on fire by hell itself. James could not have used a more descriptive word to make his point. The word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. Have you ever heard that before? The only other place that this word is used in the, is in the Synoptic Gospels, another big word, educate you this morning. The Synoptic Gospels are... Anybody in our small group on Wednesday nights knows what it is. Anybody want to venture a guess and scream it out? What are the synoptic Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're the synoptic Gospels because they are very, very similar to each other. Synopsis, you know, that kind of thing. They give an overview and they very much relate to one another. The synoptic Gospels. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew word Gehenim. This word Gehenna, which refers to the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which you can see in Joshua chapter 15 and in Jeremiah chapter 19. Let me give you a little background. This valley was located just southwest of Jerusalem in the days of wicked King Ahaz and Manasseh. This was the place where human sacrifices were offered to the pagan god Moloch. Now you're really getting some drama from James, aren't you? Idolatrous Jews literally burned their children to these false deities. You can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and chapter 23, uh, 33. And they did this until the time of good King Josiah when he brought revival to the nation and destroyed that evil practice in 2 Kings 23. Also known as Topheth. 
this valley of Ben-Hinnom. After Josiah's time and on into James' day, the area was used in Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, as guess what? A dump. A dumping ground for the city of Jerusalem. And you know what they threw there? Refuse. The bodies, the rotting dead bodies of criminals who were not buried. Animal carcasses. All kinds of rubbish and filth were thrown in that place from the city. It was a place of total defilement where fires continually burned without stopping. Not surprisingly, Gehenna became the quintessential image for the eternal punishment of hell and the lake of fire into which all who refuse the offer of Jesus Christ's salvation will be cast according to Jesus himself. Jesus described Gehenna, or hell, as a place, quote, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, unquote. Now, get a little picture of what James is saying here? It says your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. And James is not looking here at hell as the place of punishment as much as he is the eventual and eternal dwelling place of the devil and his angels, which Jesus said hell was created for. In other words, what James is saying is that our tongues are all too easily controlled by Satan or his demons. Our mouths can readily become the tool of the devil in spreading the fire of hell. Now, do you believe that? you believe that? Peter learned the hard way about this. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Interesting. Little text here, Matthew 16 verse 15. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? They gave him some answers that the people, oh, who do the people say that I am, is what he initially asked them. And they gave him answers like John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, some people say Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Right, remember the text? For those of you that are familiar with the Bible, and Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great answer. Good answer. It's the right answer. And then Jesus said to him, Blessed, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. You know why? Because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. It was my Father in heaven that did that. You're speaking the very words of God right now, he said to Peter. That's a product of the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And he says, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Gehenna, the gates of hell, or Hades, I should say, will not overpower it. Let's skip down to verse 21 now. Right on the heels of Peter's great statement. From 21, 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter, always Peter, grabs Jesus and he pulled him aside. And what does it say? God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what does Jesus say to him? Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? For you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here we go. One minute, Peter's the tool of God. The next minute, his tongue is the tool of Satan. All in one day. And it happens to you and me all the time, doesn't it? Doesn't it? On the flip side, however, an intriguing and an instructing incident occurs in Acts chapter 2 and verses 3 to 11. You don't have to turn there, but you'll get the drift in a minute. Layman Strauss points out that as the disciples waited prayerfully, their tongues were set on fire of the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. The outcome was that thousands of souls came to faith in Christ and were added to the church that day. Folks, let me just tell you this. Your tongues, my tongue, will be set on fire. It will be set on fire. And it will either be controlled by the flame of the Spirit or the fire of hell. Right? One or the other. Which is it going to be for you? Because you get to choose. You get to choose. Proverbs 18.7 says, A fool's mouth is his, ruins, is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. How many times do we get snared by our tongues? How many times? On a windswept hill in an English country churchyard stands this gray, drab, slate tombstone and the faint etchings read like so beneath this stone a lump of clay lies Isabella Young who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue <laughs> people say that about you when will we learn to hold ours? At death? Or beforehand? Because the quality of our words indicates the condition of our hearts. What's the condition of your heart this morning? Is it occupied by the indwelling spirit of God? Or is it full of the world, your fleshly desires, or the manipulation of the devil? In any given moment, whatever fills your heart will fuel your tongue. Right? Right? The undeniable fact is you can't control the tongue. It's impossible. You must surrender control to the Holy Spirit. Or you have no chance of taming it. James has just pointed that out by using what is strikingly familiar to us by outlining the sizzling facts and finally by willingly admitting from his own personal experience that there is a standing frustration in all of this. Look at verse 7. James chapter 3.
talks about the species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea that have been tamed. And then he contrasts it with the fact that no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Because we get strong-armed by the power of the tongue, don't we? Mankind has displayed an absolutely amazing capacity to tame the animal kingdom, haven't we? We can subdue and harness the nature of animals to use for our good as well as for our entertainment. It's incredible what some people have trained animals to do. On the other hand, James isn't making this wooden statement that we have been able to domesticate every single kind of animal in existence. What he's implying here is that we have the ability to bring under control and dominate the animal kingdom for our purposes, which was something given to humans as a part of God's original purpose in Genesis chapter 1. But while we can train a 16-foot whale weighing 34,000 pounds to jump out of the water and tap a beach ball into the crowd with its nose, we simply cannot keep our tongues in check. And when James says we cannot do it, he means what he says. He says it with force. He says no one, no one can tame. No one can tame the tongue. Literally means that. He means not one single person, no one has the intrinsic ability or power to restrain his tongue at all times. It's amazing. Amazingly frustrating. You can't do it. I can't do it. Not on my own strength. Sooner or later, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to slip. You're going to slip. It requires a power that's way beyond anything that we possess. Something bigger than us. Something out of this world. It requires something more penetrating than this stick in your mouth. It's going to take the power of God himself. Why? For two reasons. It is restlessly turbulent, says James in chapter 8. It's a restless evil. It's fickle, it's inconsistent, it's vicious, it's unpredictable, it's unreliable. You can't trust it to submit. It's prone to attack and injure. It's like a caged animal continually pacing, waiting for an opening to escape. And the second thing is that James says is it's ruthlessly toxic. Look at verse 8 again. It's full of deadly poison. Psalm 140, verse 3 says, Their tongues are like deadly snakes. Their words are like a cobra's poison. And that word poison here in James can also mean arrow or dart or rust even. A toxin which ruins and eats away at things. Remember years ago, back in the early 90s, tabloid headline, Killer Bug Ate My Face. Remember that? Although the reporting was sensational, the stories were based on several real-life cases of invasive strep A bacteria in Gloucestershire, New England. When invasive strep A, which is not the same, by the way, as strep throat, takes hold in a victim's body, this, what they call necrotizing fasciitis, can take effect, which, big word for it, it's going to eat your face away, right? 
means that the flesh starts to die at an incredible rate of several inches per hour. Meanwhile, toxic shock can set in, shutting down organs and causing death. Jeffrey Crowley describes scientifically what happens after the deadly microbes take hold of the victim's body. He says the bacteria then multiply rapidly, producing toxins in the process. For three days, the patient may suffer swollen lymph nodes, a rising fever, and excruciating pain at the site of infection. Penicillin can stop the attack at this stage, but by day four, infected tissues start dying. Bacteria soon saturate the bloodstream, destroying muscles and organs and sending the body into shock. Death can follow within hours. Invasive strep is rare, but it's also unforgiving, he says. Is there any counterpart to this in the body of Christ? Absolutely. Nothing can quickly eat the flesh of the church as sins of the tongue. Nothing. Things like gossip and slander and criticism of each other all those kinds of things are like a flesh-eating bacteria that kills. That's why Paul writes so emphatically that we are to use words that are worthwhile words, not worthless words. Ephesians chapter 4. I just want to read this to you. I'm not going to comment it today because, on it today because this is where we're going in the next message. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is as good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul doesn't specifically indicate what the unwholesome words are, but it doesn't take a genius to figure it out, does it? Things like gossip, innuendo, flattery, fault-finding, degradation, and filthiness, they all qualify. They're poisonous verbal missiles aimed at assassinating someone's soul. Venomous words not only break God's law, but they break God's heart. When your heart is ruled by the Spirit, it will result in words that build up, Paul says, not tear down. They won't hurt, they will heal. And those are the words Paul says we need to speak. Effective, spiritually effective, practically essential, and emotionally in enabling. It only takes a few well-chosen, well-placed, well-timed words to change a person's whole attitude and whole outlook, doesn't it? And that's what we're going to get into next time. Using your words to be positive, not negative. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances, says Proverbs 25.11. Howie Hendricks, very, very great Bible teacher that uh, has spent a lot of years teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary, talks about a time when he was in fifth grade and he was bearing all the fruit of a kid who feels insecure, unloved, and pretty angry at life. In other words, I was tearing the place apart, he said. 
However, my teacher, Miss Simon, apparently thought that I was blind to this problem because she regularly reminded, Howard, you are the worst behaved child in this school. So tell me something I don't know already, he thought to himself, as he proceeded to live up or down to her opinion of him. Needless to say, the fifth grade was probably the worst year of my life. Finally, he says, I graduated for obvious reasons. I was graduated, he said, for, for obvious reasons. But I left with Miss Simon's word ringing in my ears. Howard, you are the worst behaved child in this school. Can imagine what my expectations were upon entering the sixth grade, he said. First day of class, my teacher, Miss No, went down the roll call, and it wasn't long before she came to my name. Howard Hendricks, she called out, glancing from her list to where I was sitting with my arms folded, just waiting to go into action, right? You can see it. Howard Hendricks, she looked over him for a moment and then said, I've heard a lot about you. And then she smiled and she added, but I don't believe a word of it. And Howard says, I tell you, that moment was a fundamental turning point in my life. In my life. He said, I began to live not to let her down. Remember this remember anything out of this message every word we speak impacts someone's life either negatively or positively and it is evidence of a heart that is controlled by God's spirit an incredible ministry this ministry of words isn't it is there somebody that you know right now this morning today who needs a word of encouragement Maybe a word of prayer. Why not give it to him? Why not give it to him? Write the note. Find him after the service and tell them. Send the card. Do it face to face. You never know how encouraging one single word can be to an individual. It can literally save their life. I know of only one person who can effectively control the power of the tongue. One person that I have met in my entire life that control, can control the power of the tongue. The Holy Spirit. That's it. Ask Him to control yours. James says, when we try to do it on our own, we will be frustrated into oblivion because we're strong-armed by its power. But you know what else? The thing is here that James is talking about Christians. That's the thing that's hard to take, right? Notice what he says there in verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. That's what the most frustrating thing about this text is. He's talking to Christians. Even a believer's tongue has the frustrating ability to play the role of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's incredibly contradictory. 
But the answers to the rhetorical questions here that he ends with, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? These rhetorical questions, they should be, the answers to them should be obvious. No. A fig tree cannot produce olives and a vine cannot produce figs. Salt water cannot produce fresh. A fountain that sends out both fresh and bitter water, what is that? The promised land was a picture by the Hebrews of, as a land of springs and fountains, remarkable for their beauty and their bounty. And from springs, good, healthy, fresh water would gush forth, full to the bursting. They were the source of refreshment. The tongue, as James indicates, is also the bright open source, the eye of the landscape of the heart. What is your tongue revealing about your heart? Is it that? Is it fresh water? Think about that. Your words reflect the fountain of life or the poison of a snake. You choose which it will be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to bow my heart this morning before you. And I hope everybody will join me in this and surrender the use of our tongues to your lordship. Lord Jesus, may your Holy Spirit control them. And as we open our mouths to speak to each other. May words of life pour forth. Words of blessing. Words to build up and not to tear down. And when we fail, Lord God, help us remember that there is grace upon grace when we submit ourselves to your forgiveness and to the power of the Spirit. Send us forth today, Lord God, that we may issue forth fountains of life from our speech. We pray it in Christ's name and for the sake of the good news of the gospel. In his precious name I pray. Amen.